0: Well, thank you so much, worship team. Uh, we certainly appreciate uh, all of you guys and gals uh, leading us in worship here on Sunday mornings. And uh, what a blessing it is to <laughs> just, just to sing out to the Lord. What, what, a, what a blessing. And so uh, we really appreciate everybody who participates in that ministry. Well, do me a favor and turn with me to... Uh, 1 Peter, we're in chapter 2. We ought to be in chapter 2. We took enough time in chapter 1 last week. As several of you were texting me during the service, thank you. No, I'm kidding. It's, I, I know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I lost track of time. But I've looked back at the clock that here is, is it here in the sanctuary, and I've noted the time. And so uh, hopefully we're going to land a little earlier uh, this week. Well, anyway, turn with me to uh, 1 Peter, and let's just do a little bit of a review. Uh, We're excited to get here to the book of Peter, where uh, uh, obviously uh, Peter is writing this, not Paul. Uh, Even I can figure that one out, right? Uh, Peter is writing this, not Paul. Paul has written uh, much of the New Testament and many of the letters, and now uh, we are um, coming to a book Written by his contemporary uh, Peter, and we talked about uh, several things about Peter uh, last week. He had four names, if you want to say it that way Simon Peter, simon, peter, Peter, <laughs> and cephas and Simon was his Jewish name, cephas he was uh, one of the followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, for those who are are new to the Bible you'll want to know that. He was from a place called Bethsaida, which is uh, just north of Capernaum, just a little ways on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he was married. Peter was married. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 9.5. He and James and John uh, were partners in a fishing business. You see that in Luke 5. And Simon, or Cephas here, Peter, meets Jesus. How? Well, what a blessing. Through his brother, His brother Andrew, after hearing John the Baptist say that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Andrew takes his brother, how sweet is that, takes his brother to go and see Jesus. And Jesus, uh, upon meeting this one, who was originally Simon, gave him a new name, that Cephas name, that's Aramaic. We talked about that last week, or Peter, which is Greek, meaning rock, rock which will be interesting for today's uh, part of the sermon. And then Jesus called Peter uh, to follow him after Peter needed a miraculous catch of fish off the side of his boat. You remember that story. One of the things I really appreciate about Peter, maybe some of you can identify with me, is some of the blunders Peter made during his life blunders. You know, when I first started reading the Bible, I thought everybody in it was perfect, saints, nothing went wrong. But then you start to read it and you understand how real the Bible is. It's so real. And here in the New Testament, Peter is one of those guys who turned into a great leader of the early church, one of the spokespeople or the spokesperson for the church. And yet during his life before Christ, he was rash, impetuous, Emotional. Remember, Peter was the one who got out to walk on the water. He took his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. And maybe you could say that's a criticism, but I don't know. I think I would have done the same thing, but he did do that. But how about this? Peter took Jesus aside one time and rebuked Jesus. Remember this? When Jesus was speaking that uh, uh, he was going to have to die a death and rise again. Matthew 16:22. Peter takes him aside, Jesus, and rebukes him. <laughs> and then he's corrected by the Lord, of course. But, uh, you, you know, that's just something I would do. Uh, Peter did this. He, he got so carried away when the Lord took him up to the Mount of Transfiguration. So carried away. Hey, hey Lord, hey, Lord, let's, let's build something. Let's, oh, I know what we could do. We could build three booths. We could build three booths. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Moses, Elijah, and Jesus... And then when he saw God's glory, he just was silenced. It's just something I would say, foot in mouth. Peter also in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember this? He took out a sword and attacked the servant of the high priest, Malchus, and cut off his ear. Can you imagine that scene? The ear lopped off on the ground. Whatever, Jesus picks it up, brushes it off. You're healed, and yet... Jesus didn't give up on him. (laughs) In fact, it got to the point in the night in which he was marching through his trials that Jesus, that Jesus here knew that Peter was denying him, knew that he was denying him to people in the crowds. And yet they met eyes and there was this grace in the eyes of Jesus towards Peter he had eyes of grace, and yet it's, it's a mix-up, right? You look at these things and you go, wow, uh, amazingly, Peter had all these faults, if you want to call them faults, faults, and yet Jesus knew and could see the potential in Peter, and that's just like you and us. And just like you and us. And here, Peter then writes down these books for all of time so that we could uh, glean from all the things that Jesus and the others had been teaching Peter. It's a book that focuses on, remember we said some words last week? It focuses on hope. Hope. It's not hope of like, I hope so. I hope that comes to happen. No, it's a... Confident, uh, confidence and an assurance of future glory and blessing. Oh my, hope. People need hope, folks. People need hope now. They needed it three months ago, yes. Of course people needed hope. But boy, do they need hope now. We need hope. Hope. What else? Faith. It's a book of faith. We've been talking a lot about faith uh, because we've going through books that stress Faith. Hebrews and others, surrendering all to God, surrendering all to God, everything, your mind, your will, your emotions, your actions, your thought life, your financial life, your sex life, your hobbies, your career, everything, surrendering all to God and obeying his word, obeying his word, despite circumstances or even consequences, despite circumstances or consequences, let that sink in. Despite the consequences, that's faith. You would obey the Lord because he's the Lord and he's good and he has what's best for you ultimately. Well, another word we've been concentrating on as we think of this book is grace, grace. I gave you Warren Wiersbe's definition. I try to give you different uh, definitions of grace uh, that uh, thinkers have thought of because grace is multifaceted. Warren Wearsby's was, or is, God's generous favor, generous favor to undeserving sinners and needy saints. Undeserving sinners and needy saints, when we depend on God's grace, we can endure suffering and turn trials into triumphs. Warren Wearsby, grace. We also talked a lot about peace last week, Uh, because... Remember, Peter's salutation was grace to you and peace, both the Greek greeting and the Jewish greeting. And in order to have peace, we see and live in the grace. We surrender to God's grace. We yield to God's grace. We Thank God for his grace, and it's grace in which we stand, grace in which we obey, grace in which we give thanksgiving, grace in which we come first into the family of God, and then grace for living daily the family of God. What a book. What a book. And then the last thing we talked about, or, well, we talked about a lot of things last week, but, was that Peter was writing this at a time when there was great persecution. He probably wrote it from Rome. He called it Babylon. And he was writing this letter, preparing these churches that he uh, sets forth in verse 1. In Turkey or Asia Minor, these churches, he was preparing these churches for intense persecution. You see, persecution was happening in 64, 65, all those sorts A.D., Uh, Through Nero, and I talked about that. He was killing the Christians and blaming them for things that he had done. We talked about that. But now there's some indication in the historians that the persecution was going to spread to all Roman provinces, to all Roman provinces, and he was preparing them for the persecution. And we saw what we thought uh, was an outline uh, of uh, what really he's talking about. In uh, chapter one, it's that he wants you to know where you've come from and know who you are in Christ and know where you are headed in Christ so that you can survive and be victorious inside of persecution. In fact, I went so long last week, wink, wink, that I fe- uh, uh, fe- uh, fear, excuse me, and I'm fretting. <laughs> that you missed the last verse uh, because it should bring balm to your soul, and it does to mine. It says this in 25, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Now, so on a, uh, on a near scale, of course, he just has um, quoted from the Old Testament Isaiah 40 there, but also knowing that this word is what was already preached to you. I want you to catch that. Peter was reminding them of something that they already knew. See, sometimes as Christians, I think what we think is, oh, wow, we, you know, like magic fairy dust. If we just do the one-year Bible and we go through 1 Peter, well, I've read the Bible, so it'll happen. N- n- no. There's this thing called yielding and obeying the word that we must do. And sometimes, because of, especially in this uh, culture, we get so off track about what's important and what's not important materialism, movies, hobbies, uh, uh, careers, relationships and we put them above the Lord that we become fickle or we get off track. And Peter, I think, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, Hold on here. Life is going to get hard, and it, it will get hard, even now. It's hard right now. People are tired of being shut up in a house or wherever, or whatever's happening to them now. Life is hard. And, and what Peter says is the remedy, quote unquote, is to remind people of what they already know. See, I think people checked out by the late hour last week, but that's important. And when you go through what Peter was talking about, you see that he was talking about salvation. He's begotten us again, verse uh, 3, to a living hope. And then he talks about what we'll do in the trials. And then, I hope you didn't miss this, starting in verse 10, of this salvation. Listen, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, and what was prophesied about? It was grace. God is the God of grace in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then he talked about how we would live before God under grace, And verse 13 there, how we would live before God under grace, soberly, holy, because our Father is holy, without partiality. We've been brought, bought, uh, bought, excuse me, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. We've been brought out of sin and saved from death, just like the Passover. Remember that those are the things that the angels love to look for in heaven. That's what heaven's looking for. Heaven's looking for salvation. And I'm praying that even as today, as we go through uh, this word, that salvation uh, would come to somebody who's listening or many who were listening who don't know the Lord in a real and saving way. So we start in chapter two. We start in chapter two with verse one here. Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious." "...coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's also contained in the Scriptures, "...behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame." "'Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. "'But to those who are disobedient, "'the stone which the builders rejected "'has become the chief cornerstone, "'and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. "'They stumble, being disobedient to the word "'to which they they also were appointed. "'But you were a chosen generation, "'a royal priesthood, a holy nation,' his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into not just his light, by the way, into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So do me a favor. Pray with me before we start verse one. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful chapter of the bible. We thank you, Lord, that you are going to speak to us in a mighty way, taking the child of God, giving him the word of God by the spirit of God and doing something amazing in our hearts. Lord, we're looking forward to it and we're praying, Lord, that you'd give us the grace to live it out. And oh, by the way, Lord, if there's anyone listening or watching who don't know if they're going to heaven, We pray, Lord, that after today, they would know. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if it's possible, well, let me tell you, it is possible that the pastor can fall in love again with a piece of Scripture, uh, a portion of Scripture. That's happened for me this week. That's happened. No one is more blessed than me to be able to study uh, these uh, chapters on a continuing basis, and to look into all the things and all the implications of what the Lord is speaking to us through His Word, I'm blessed, and I've fallen in love again with this chapter. My one of my boys was telling me, "Man, Dad, when are you going to do First Peter? When are you, you going to do First Peter?" A couple months ago, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll get to it." And uh, I confess to you, I was way too cavalier. This is holy ground. Now, what he's just talked to us about at the end of um, uh, chapter one is the enduring Word of God. You see it up there in 24, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. but the word of the Lord endures forever in Isaiah 48 40 verse eight. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. We just spoke of that. He Gives them what they already know. And we said last week, and it's so true if there's one thing that you can depend upon and you know it's true and right, and there's no deviation from it, there's no um, falling away, there's no error in it, it's the Word of God. It's able to um, satisfy or teach us doctrine and reprove us and correct us, Timothy tells us. It can do all kinds of things. It can do spiritual surgery in our hearts because the Bible is not just words on a page. It's living, Hebrews tells us, and active. It's powerful. It's powerful. In fact, in Isaiah 55, God compares the words that he speaks as the rain or the snow. Don't you love a snowstorm or a rainstorm? Don't you love it uh, when it's just coming down? And it's just coming down or a snowstorm out in the woods and it's just pouring and it's just, there's no end in sight. And you know, although this isn't exactly true, but the, the, the rain's not going to go back up that way. Now I know about condensation and all that sort of thing, but it goes and does what it's intended for. What's it intended for? To nourish the earth. And it gets its job done. And this is interesting. You don't really see the rain or the snow working. You understand? It goes into the ground. It does what it needs to do. It nourishes and all that. But you don't see it. You see the results of it. You see the results. The green grass or the trees or the bushes, etc. That's what it does. And God in Isaiah 55 says... That's what my word is like. And when I water the earth, I know it's going, the Lord says, to bring forth and bud. It's going to do its work. It goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return void. The word of God is powerful. And for those, now ready, you're going to have to flip one page, who've been begotten again to a living hope. They've been born again. John chapter 3. For those who are born again, here's one of those indicator lights that probably should be on your spiritual dashboard. Do you love the word of God or not? Uh, Do you love the word of God or not? Here, Here, what he says is, given that the word of God is powerful and will accomplish all that I set out to do, the Lord says, got it? Given that, Here's what I want you to do uh, through Peter. I want you to take off the clothes or lay aside. That's the phrase in the Greek. I want you to take off the clothes of malice. Now think about what malice is. Malice is that long burn. It's that thing when somebody does something to you and you say, hmm, okay, I'm gonna note that. I might not get them back today or tomorrow or next week, but I'm getting them back. And I'm not, you ever heard people say this? I won't forget that. And then for months or weeks or months or years, people stew and they stew and they think out, that's malice. They plan out, they understand, they set their minds towards, boom, doing something wrong or bad to somebody else that's malice it's thinking about it beforehand and it's evil and here let's be honest with ourselves folks for christians who've been gotten again to a living hope the things that the prophets prophesied about and angel's desire to look into you and i and we are to lay aside all malice Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's up to him. You're to get rid of, I'm to get rid of, we're to get rid of deceit, manipulations. Come on now, be honest with yourself. You manipulate or you try to manipulate things and people. That's all tied up into the worry that you have. And you deceive and you have guile. In the King James, it's guile, I believe. That thing where you trick people. Sometimes we even can trick people into thinking we're nicer than we are or more spiritual than we are. And then closely related to that is hypocrisy. Oh, that you see me here at church with one face, but when you go out the door, that face gets uh, removed and you act with another face. You're two-faced. You're playing the part. He says, don't play the part of a super sweet, pious Christian when inside you're dead and rotting. No, admit it. Admit what you are and ask the Lord to fill you up with his grace. Don't be a hypocrite. By the way, let's take a little rabbit trail here. If you're staying away from church because you say you're tired of the hypocrites at church, well, then you probably shouldn't join any church because you're going to make it a hypocritical church, because all of us are hypocrites to some degree or not. And what we're saying here is we want to, to put that off so that the Lord can fill us up by his grace with his life. And it's important that we lay aside this malice, this deceit, this hypocrisy, and this really the, the end of all evils, envy, envy, oh, that we wouldn't envy people in their material things or their positions in the church or whatever. And all evil speaking, and that's specifically aimed at gossip and slander and backbiting. He's saying, therefore, knowing all of these things in chapter 1, what I want you to do, Peter says, is to take off those clothes, the old man, the things that are malicious and deceitful and hypocritical and envious, and gossipy, if that's a word. And replace it. Look at this. Look at this. Replace it. Don't spend your time on those things. You ever met that person? They, they say it all the time. Just go out on Facebook. I bet you find it within three minutes. People who are either like drama and they say so on Facebook are always saying, why am I always involved in drama? Well, you're always involved in drama because you're dramatic. And here, what he's saying is take those off and now do something else. Fill up your time with something else. Like a newborn baby, do this. Desire pure or the pure milk of the word. Now, you know this because we've uh, been traveling together for a while. Paul uses these things. The other, uh, um, one of the other main writers of the New Testament in his letters, right? He, in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, he feeds the Christians with milk, but he doesn't want them to stay at that stage He wants them to advance to meat, you remember that uh, He thinks of uh, uh, feeding the Thessalonians like caring for a baby by the word That's in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 uh, The writer of Hebrews, we talked about that uh, at length uh, Don't stay at milk stage, move on to the meat But you do need the milk stage, folks uh, by the way, the word is also described as being bread, Matthew uh, chapter 4, I believe, and honey in Psalm one nineteen one o three, 103, honey. And so there's these uh, pictures of, of eating or taking in the word, but here he says like newborn babes. So let's think about that. If you've been a parent or you've been around parents who have newborn babes, uh, there's this annoying little thing that new babies do or don't do. They don't sleep for very long. You want to sleep because you're wiped out and tired, uh, especially the mom, because she's been carrying that baby for 40 weeks, and now the baby's out of the womb and into the bassinet, and man, just to crawl into bed and to get some fantastic sleep. But there's one little problem. About every two or three hours, that little thing screams like crazy. They want changed, and they want held, but boy, do they want fed. And what's interesting about it is, it, it's a good thing, yes, but they don't care about the clock like we care about the clock. I mean, they want fed at 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. and then, can you believe it, 8 a.m. and then on and on and on it goes for that first uh, several months, right? And that they want nourishment and they want it all the time. Now let that sink in. And here Paul says, as newborn babes, people who are begotten again to a living hope, they will replace these malicious things, these evil things, especially, oh man, that gossipy backbiting that just feels so good to the flesh. Replace it as newborn babes desiring the pure milk of the word. Why does he put pure there? Uh, in, uh, th- that is not watered down. That's what that means. It means not watered down. You want the word. I mean, folks, I get it. Uh, I understand I went long last week. It was really long. Trust me, I know. I was sitting there going, what time is this over? But, but you know, what we've gotten to in the American church is a 10-minute sermon, pat you on the head, go out to the back and do the rock wall and have uh, do the, uh, you know, Candyland Circus. And that's how we run church now. Instead of giving people the pure milk of the word. And the pure milk is the sincere. Word of the milk of the word milk that's not watered down. It's sincere. It's not watered down. It's it's it's. We have to teach and learn together the hard things, the stuff about sex and the sexual ethic, the stuff about giving that nobody wants to hear because you're getting into my pocketbook, or uh, the stuff about um, uh, you know uh, staying away from uh, uh, strong drink. No, nobody wants to get into this stuff anymore. Uh, What we, being a sinner, nobody wants to talk about being sinners anymore. What we always want to talk about is the grace and the mercy. Yes, there is grace and mercy. God is a God of grace and mercy. And yet we must know that we're sinners first. And so we need all of the milk, not watered down. And we need it. Listen, we are people who be desiring the milk morning, noon, and night. Now think about what you do when you go home from work. You get the paper out. You get your phone out. You surf Facebook for 20 hours. And the next thing you know, it's morning and you haven't done anything. And here he's saying the, the safest and greatest place to be in my grace is receiving consistently, what if we didn't feed a baby for three days, consistently milk, and you are to be one who desires it because that's where you find the Lord, man there's nothing more important than the pure milk of the word why so you can grow I have people coming around they call me they talk to me they say man I'm not maturing in the Lord well what's your devotional time like well I don't have one well what do you expect I mean, the Lord's only taken you as far as you will let him take you. And here, we must be students of the word. We must be babes who are right there all the time, every time, so that we can receive the word. Here's what I would suggest. Find some place in your house. Set up your Bible. Set up your notebook. Whatever you need to study. And as often as you get breaks in your day, go there. And study the word, five minutes, ten minutes, one hour, thirty minutes, whatever it is. If indeed then, see you're going to grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Look, here's what you'll do. You'll lay aside malice, deceit, all these things, desiring the pure milk of the word. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, one who has discovered Christ through the grace of God and the Holy Spirit comes to live in their life, one of the things that you're going to do is you're going to desire the pure milk of the word. And then what you're going to do is you're going to, through the word, by faith, watch this, taste that the Lord is good. He gets this from the Psalms, right? Tozer says this, What does it mean to taste that the Lord is gracious? It's to experience, lived through, to experience and live through things in order that a situation or a thing may be real to us and we'll find and discover his everlasting love in the middle of it. We'll, We'll experience and live through Things in order that something may be real to us. Do you get it? He's saying it's like, it's like the most wonderful, I hate to say dare, but it's almost like a dare. It's like this adventuresome, loving dare. It's almost like the Lord saying, would you dare come on this adventure with me of life? Would you taste and see, please, that the Lord is good and gracious Come to me and just through my word, you're going to find all the grace that you've ever need for life and godliness. And then you'll be able to prove the Lord more and more. That should be a song. Oh, it is a song. That we would prove him more and more. That we would cast our cares upon the Lord and the Lord would give us peace. That we would express to the Lord how hurt we are and ask him to heal and to mend and to bring us to a place of wholeness oh and when he does it to stand up and say wow by God's grace I've tasted and seen that you have been so gracious Lord and now the word comes alive to me in ways that it can't even describe to people it's so real to me. That's what he's talking about here. That's the relationship for a begotten-again Christian. Well, then it says in verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Well, we're coming to uh, a living stone. Uh, our worship team uh, sang Cornerstone, that song Cornerstone today. Yes, we're coming to the living stone. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2, just real quick. Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to see it. Ephesians chapter 2, go in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Who's writing this? Paul. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the households of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself is what? He's being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place in, look look at this, your dwelling place is of God, and it's in the Spirit. That's our dwelling place. It's a spiritual uh, place. Well, you know this, right? In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God is often referred to as a rock or a stone. Deuteronomy 32, 4. 32, 4. 32, 18. 30 and 31. And uh, Psalm 18, 2. 31, 46 He's he's referred to often as a stone. And uh, Jesus, or the Messiah, was referred to as a stumbling stone. Isaiah 8, you could go there, 14 and 15. Romans 9, 23 through 33. And 1 Corinthians 1, 23. You know that. And Jesus uh, himself is called our chief cornerstone. Now, let me tell you a little bit about tradition. When Solomon's temple, or the temple was being built... Do you know there's a tradition that says that um, uh, they quarried the stone and so they started sending the stones, these massive stones up to the temple and they got several up there uh, around ready to start to build on the cornerstone foundation and nobody up on the temple mount could find the cornerstone because somebody had mistakenly Uh, thought it was an old stone. It was up there first and had knocked it off the side of the, the temple, meaning the temple cornerstone was rejected. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's something else I want you to know. In First Kings 6, I think it's in verse 7. It's either 7 or 17, but I'm pretty sure it's 7. Do you know this? I want you to file this away. That in the Old Testament, when they were preparing Solomon's or when they were quarrying Solomon's temple or the stones that would uh, make up Solomon's temple, they did it uh, in a quarry. Some people believe they did it below the Temple Mount. Some people believe it was off site, but whatever, they did it and they chiseled and they hammered off site or below. But listen, the Bible tells us specifically in First Kings 6 verse 7, thank goodness I'm doing my Bible reading right in order. <clears throat> that they would quarry it away or down there and they would bring it up uh, to uh, put the stone and uh, start uh, matching the stones together. And guess what? Shh. There was no hammering or chiseling. They didn't allow it. It was silence other than them placing the stones. Now, Now file that away because that's going to be important here in a second. One other thing I want to show you. I really want to show you this. Because one of the jobs of the pastors is to tell you what it is they're saying and kind of do, do it in context. Why are they saying it? Why, why in the world is Peter talking to us about stones? Of course, God was called a stone in the Old Testament. Jesus or the Messiah was prophesied that he'd be a stumbling stone, right? I read you the scriptures, but then there's one really important one, I think. It's found in Matthew 16. If you go with us, Lord willing, in September to Israel, we're going to go to this site, and we're going to talk about this very story. Uh, But Matthew 16, a very famous story happens. You know it. Many of you can quote it. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Remember this? Listen to what happens, this interplay between Jesus and Peter. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, that's way up north by Mount Hermon. It's way up north. He asked his disciples saying, "Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am?" He called himself a messianic reference, Daniel 7:13. So they said, "Some say John the Baptist." Oh, by the way, this is in verse 13 and verse 14. Sorry about that. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So he says to them, look, he drills down, man. He doesn't let them off the hook. He does it so nice and lovingly, but he does it perfectly. He drills down and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Simon Peter, the guy who's writing our book for us here in 1 Peter, he said, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. D- new name means rock. And on this rock, what rock? I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, the location of where they are here is a great sermon, but I won't go into that today. What what is Jesus building his church on? Is he building his church on Peter, new name rock? No, of course not. He's not building his church on Peter. He's building his church on himself, who's the stumbling block or the chief cornerstone and the confessions of people believing in him as the Messiah or the Son of God. That's what he's going to build his church on, and he is building his church on it now, and he's going to continue until he comes back. It's not a person. It's not Peter. It's Jesus himself, so go back. Can you imagine being the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I mean, could you picture what that must have done in Peter's heart up in that beautiful place, uh, beautiful area of Israel, but, but going to the most dark, idolatry-laden, pagan, sexually inappropriate place in the area, having Jesus set you right there and ask you to confess him as Christ. The Son of Man, Son of God, and He says, "Upon this rock, this is what—not not not this rock that's behind me—and you'll see that when you come, where they set Him, they set Him in front of a cave. Not the rock of Peter, but Me. That's who you will build or will build the church on. And the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And they're sitting there right in the middle of all this debauchery. In other words, we're taking the gospel." a dark and hurting world. And it's going to be built on me. And it's, he's the rock. Peter's called the rock because he's going to go from a shifty, sandy, not a very good foundation to a solid guy because of the Lord. But really, the rock in which the church is built is the chief cornerstone. So think about the cornerstone. It's perfectly hewn. There's no imperfections. You said it first. Every, if you're, we're building a spiritual house, that cornerstone better be right or everything else is wrong. So we're basing it off the cornerstone. And oh, by the way, you know the one that was thrown over the... Temple, we're basing it on that one, the one that was rejected. It's perfect. That's the one. It's Jesus, and he's everything to us. So for each individual believer, Jesus becomes the chief cornerstone to you. It's what you base everything in your life off of. It's everything. You come to him as not a stone, a living stone, was rejected by men, but chosen by God, thrown over the thing. Of course, he was rejected in other ways. Of course, you know that. But precious, verse 5, and then you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. So, so your house individually, he's the chief cornerstone. You build everything around it. Then the church itself, he's the church, uh, chief cornerstone. And we build everything around it so that we fit to him. He doesn't fit to us. American church is, you fit to me, Lord. Real Christianity is we fit him. And oh, by the way, why do you think you're being chiseled and chipped at right now? And sometimes it hurts because the Lord is fitting you in, building this spiritual house. Watch it. Just like 1 Kings 6, 7, he quarries here and chips away here Because in heaven, he won't. There's silence, except for the praise of the saints who are praising him. He's not going to chip away at us in heaven. What a beautiful picture in 1 Kings 6-7. I've always wondered, why is that? Well, Well, he's fitting his people together where he, you know, onto him or around him and preparing us for heaven. Because remember in Hebrews, the tabernacle in the temple is the patterned after the heavenly, the heavenly tabernacle, the throne room. Remember that? So people, he is, he wants to fit you together. He, he wants all of us in the church to come together and be fitted together. And you know, sometimes, You say to yourself, Well, I don't really like that guy, or I don't really like that girl. Well, those are the sharp, pointy edges that you have. And the Lord wants to chip them and round them and chip them and round them for her or him. And that way you'll fit together in the church. And he's doing it now because in heaven, he's not going to. It's so beautiful. So we come to him as to a living stone. He was rejected, yes, by men, but chosen by God and precious. So you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house with the chief cornerstone as your foundation. Oh, by the way, you're a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What do you mean I'm a holy priesthood or we're a holy priesthood? Yes, we're all priests in this sense. We just are doing what the Lord asks us to do. We're bringing people here on earth and trying to help them get to God, but the way in which we do it is we just point them to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, our great high priest, has access to heaven and gives us access. And so we're bringing people to the great high priest. So we're trying to do what priests do. We're trying to bring people to God, but we have the best and the greatest. Jesus himself, we point them to. How about this? What do you mean I'm a priest? Well, yeah, you're uh, you know, you have the ministry, 2 Corinthians 5 says, of reconciliation. I just described it to you. Point people to Jesus. He's the great high priest. But what else did, holy, or did priests do in the Old Testament? Well, the priests in the Old Testament dealt in sacrifices. What do you mean? Do I have to sacrifice? No. You don't have to sacrifice like the priests in the Old Testament did. Jesus is our sacrifice. But the New Testament tells us that there are sacrifices for New Testament believers. You want, it, want me to give them to you? Here they are. Our new testament sacrifices are this. Hebrews 13:15 it says it, the praise of our lips. We're so filled up with God's grace, we praise him with our lips. That's a spiritual sacrifice. It's part of our royal priesthood duties. Actually, it's not duty, it's devotion. What else? Our bodies are living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 through 2. You could look that up. What do we do? What's our only reasonable response to the grace of God, what God has done? What's our only reasonable response? Give Him our whole life. (laughs) Just give it all back to Him. Anything you want, Lord, I'm yours. Live your life in and through me. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. That's a reasonable sacrifice. Well, Philippians 4 tells us that money and other material things, giving, can be a sacrifice. It can help uh, fund things. Fund, not fund, but fund things that the Lord has put on people's hearts. Uh, Good works and sharing. Good works that are a result of salvation and sharing with people. Hebrews 13, verse 16, again. And the people... That we share the gospel with and who come to know the Lord. Romans 15:16. How about that one? That's the business that we're in. Oh, by the way, not only do the, does a holy priesthood deal in the sacrifices, they're also set apart and washed clean. We're washed clean by the blood of our great high priest, our great sacrifice, Jesus Christ. We're a holy priesthood, so we offer up these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Therefore, it's also contained in the Scripture. Go follow along with me. Verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him, and he who believes on him, will by no means be put to shame. That's Psalm 118. Now here, I don't want you to skip by. I've skipped by this next verse a lot in my life. I'm ashamed of it, quite frankly. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So, believing on the chief cornerstone, fitting your life into what he has for you, uh, sacrificing it all for him, getting as close to him as you can, building your whole life on the chief cornerstone. Therefore, to you who believe, what's belief? It's faith. Those who have faith, man, I missed this one for years. He's precious. He's precious. You know, I think many people come to church as an obligation and a duty and they never feel or understand the preciousness of the chief cornerstone, the rejected one the one who was rejected by men, but is our Lord and Savior, our King of kings. He is our peace. He's our comfort. He's our reconciliation. He redeemed us. He bought us back. He, for, he, because of his blood, we're forgiven, and we can come back to the Father and have eternal life. That, it means forever. And he is precious. And I think some people in the church or many people in the church don't know anything of this preciousness they just think of jesus as some sort of historical figure well yes he did live in the past but the bible tells us he's alive now jesus himself said oh thomas man yeah you 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 believe that's great but man when people don't even see me and believe that that'll be amazing <laughs> i'm paraphrasing And here we learn of his preciousness. And how do we we learn of his preciousness? I wasn't at the cross all those years ago. You folks weren't at the cross all the... How do we learn of his preciousness? We learn it through his word. There's no substitute. We learn of the glories of God through his word. Therefore, to us who believe, he's precious. And I'm wondering now, I'm wondering to you, I'm asking you and... And saying to you, do you think Jesus is precious, or is he just a historical figure and something you check off on your weekly list? The Lord, to those who believe, because of the word of God, actually what he accomplished and the word that's set forth about him, we can know him in a precious way and consider him precious. Tozer said this, our Lord is most precious to those who are best acquainted with him. Excuse me, Spurgeon said that our Lord is most precious to those who are best acquainted with Him. By the way, this was Charles Spurgeon's first Charles Spurgeon's first sermon in a little cottage. He spoke on Second Peter two or First Peter two seven. Therefore, to you who believes, He's precious. How about this that you've been a lonely person and you've read the scriptures and said, oh, or or learned that God would never leave us nor forsake us. He sent us the spirit of Christ into our life. And when you know that and understand that in a way that you've experienced, see, what happens is the Lord becomes precious to you. He is precious, but to you who believe, who in faith said, oh, you say I'm not alone, I believe I'm not alone, to him or her, the Lord becomes precious. You see it? To those who've been anxious and they've read the scriptures, he'll keep him or her in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. And they've learned that and experienced it by faith. He becomes precious to know that he's saved us and bought us. And given us access to the throne room where we can go in and cry, Father, Abba, I need mercy and grace. And the Father, because of the blood of the Son, says, Here, son, it's yours. Or, here, daughter, it's yours. I need something for life and godliness here today. Lord, he says, I've got everything you need for life and godliness. Here it is. By faith, receive it. And when you do, see, the Lord becomes precious to us. Well, go on. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And a rock of offense. By the way, Jesus quoted this. Turn with me to Matthew 21. Jesus himself applied this uh, portion of scripture uh, to himself, Matthew 21. Go there. Uh, we'll look at it. In the parable of the wicked vine dresser, starting around uh, verse 33, there was a certain landowner. He planted a vineyard. Remember that? And he leased it to vine dressers. And he sent his servant to the vine dressers to get the fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first. They did, they killed them. Then last of all, he sent his son. Come on, they'll respect my son, the vine dresser. And, and the vine dressers see the son and they say among themselves, Hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him. So they cast him out and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard (verse 40) comes, what will he do? And they said to him (verse 41), he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to the other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. He's talking to the nation of Israel here. Jesus is in Matthew 21, and Jesus says to them, "Have you never read in the scriptures? I think he said it with so much grace. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes." if you flip back to 1 Peter, see, for those who don't believe, who don't come to Christ by faith, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah 8 there, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble and are disobedient to the word. Uh, to which they also were appointed. They're disobedient to the word. They were appointed to this. Uh, The Lord's heart is that none would perish. But see, the the answer, the ultimate uh, litmus test for all that we do and all that we say and all that we believe is whether or not uh, here in this life, we surrender our lives to the rock, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. And for those who do, he becomes precious. And for those who don't, who are disobedient, They're uh, off to everlasting damnation, torment, a life of eternity, knowing they could have avoided this and they put it off or didn't believe. But here in verse 9, look what he does. He shifts gears and he says, now remember why they're writing this. They're writing it because they're going to go through Immense persecution, terrible persecution. So he wants them to remember who they are. You're a chosen generation. By the way, this portion of Scripture, verse 9 here, if you looked in the Old Testament, I won't give you all the Scriptures here now, but this is a description of Israel, what they were supposed to be, but they were disobedient and they didn't become. And so now he's not uh, saying that Israel doesn't have a future. There is a future for Israel. But now, but here he's saying, look, since Israel, they didn't uh, believe... Now we've uh, brought in the Gentiles, and so there's this new thing. There's this church, the church, the bride of Christ, and they're a chosen generation. It feels good when you're chosen. We talked about that last week. Boy, does it feel good to be chosen, but boy, does it feel bad to be left out. And he's saying, a whole generation, you, you people, you, you folks who, who don't or aren't stumbled by the chief cornerstone, but make him precious, or have, he's become precious in your life. You're a chosen generation. you're a royal priesthood. I already talked about that. a royal priesthood who deals in the sacrifices of the New Testament, lips, giving, whole life, etc. What else are we? What else are we? Well, we're uh, his own special people. Doesn't that make you feel good? In other words, we're this because we belong to God. In Acts 20, he says, uh, around verse 26 or so, he says, his church is his because it was purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's why we're special. It's, i got news for you. It's not because we're any great sheikhs. It's because our Lord is precious and He paid it all by the precious blood of Himself. His blood He gave. And he died and he rose again. We're special that way. So what are we special uh, now that we know this? Look at this. Even in the midst of intense persecution, are you being persecuted at work? Are you being persecuted in life, wherever? Are you being persecuted? Uh, Are you coming under intense scrutiny? Well, what are you called to do based on everything you are? (laughs) Proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. When you get to the place where all your circumstances are in the toilet, there's nothing and everybody's coming against you. You can always remember and always know this, that you've been called out of darkness, which leads to spiritual death and torment forever into his marvelous light. Jesus called himself the light of the world, but then also said, we're the light of the world. We have light because he gives us light. We've come out of this uh, uh, generation or this kingdom of darkness, and we've been translated or uh, moved into a kingdom of light where we don't have to grope around in the darkness anymore. Listen, it automatically puts you in a place where you know who you are. And you know where you're going, and you know your purpose, and this is the message we need to give young people, oh, by the way, and old people like me who have a crisis of knowing who they are and where they're going. The Bible tells us you've been brought out of darkness into light. You can see now. You have a place in front of you, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our blessed hope. We're going to serve and reign and rule with him forever. We have a purpose. We know who we are. We don't have to go to Sedona, Arizona or some such place and move crystals around because we don't need to. We know who we are in Christ. We don't have an identity crisis. We know who we are, and we're so blessed and grateful because he's the one that did it all. That's grace. We just described grace. We just talked about grace. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. You once were not a people, but now you're a people of God. You see? We know who we are. It's so important. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Boy, do we love mercy. Withholding from us what we do deserve. The Lord withholds from us and has withheld from us what we do deserve, all because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you something as we come to a close here at verse 10. I checked the clock. Do you know where you 're going if you died today, would you know where you would go? Have you come to the place where you love the newborn or the like a newborn, the, the pure milk of the word, do you desire the word? Of God, because you know it keeps you healthy and growing. And are you growing through milk and on to meat, the meat of the Word? And do you have a place in your house? And you set that all up, and you're just so desirous of sneaking away so you can just read another chapter, and you desire it because you know that's the Lord revealing Himself to you. He's becoming precious to you. He He is precious, by the way. He's more precious than we'll ever know. But is he becoming precious to you as you learn these things about yourself? See, because when you learn uh, these things about yourself and how precious the Lord is, when you get into a persecution, those will be hard and difficult, but they're going to fall off you like water off a duck's back. Oh, no one likes to go through the persecution, but in it, you'll be safe. You'll still be praising the Lord. So wouldn't you like to live a life like that, according to the Spirit? Well, the Bible tells us that none of us are righteous, that we are sinners, that our hearts are not pure, that we've fallen short of the glory of God, that there's none in the earth, including ourselves. Americans have a tough time admitting this. None of us are righteous, no, not one. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. We all... Like sheep, we'll go astray, we'll go our own way in life without the Lord. That's sin, and we must agree with it. And then we must repent and change our minds and say we're going to walk toward God and everything that he has for us, we're going to change our minds, we're going to agree that we're sinners, change our hearts and walk towards God and say, Lord, I'm I'm counting on you now and not myself for all that... uh, 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 is required for me to come into a relationship with you. That's grace. And say, Lord, you, you, you just pray something like this, Lord, I'm a sinner and I want to be saved by grace. The Bible tells us through faith. And so Lord, I'm asking that you would come into my life and save me and be the Lord of my life. And, You tell us in your word, Lord, that for those who surrender their lives, we're picking up our cross. We're carrying the cross ourselves. In other words, we're dying to the old life and we're walking towards you never to come back to the old life. We're walking to new life. And the Bible tells us when we surrender our lives to him and move on in Christ, he comes into our lives and does just that. He makes us a new creation built and designed now for eternity in heaven. No, we don't have our glorified, resurrected bodies yet. We'll get those uh, at the rapture. But now we're, there's a spot reserved for us in heaven, a spot reserved for us in heaven. And so if you're watching this, or you've never done this, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, or if you say you don't know where you're going if you died today, heaven or hell, you just don't know. You think you've been good, but you don't. You can know today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. First John says we can know that we have eternal life when we base everything on Jesus. John 17 3 says this is eternal life, that we know God through Jesus Christ, that we know him in a real way. We know all the grace that he's given us his son we surrender our lives and count on the finished work of jesus christ at the cross and his resurrection we surrender to that he comes into our lives and the bible says we have eternal life and so i'm praying as we close this up that you would come to know the lord in that way if you don't and if you're here and you've you just, you, you've, you've made every, and we're going to ask the, the folks to come up and they're going to lead us in worship. If you've made everything else in your life more important than seeking God and his word, I'm praying that you would lay aside all the things that you need to lay aside. Then, of course, I'm praying that the Lord would become precious to you through his word. So let's bow our heads and let's pray that. Lord, for those who don't know whether they're going to heaven or not, we're praying right now, Lord, for them. We're saying, Lord, uh, uh, that you would impact their hearts, that you would pierce their hearts right now. They would pray a prayer of repentance and not just pray it, but in their hearts mean it with sincerity and give their life over to you and count on your finished work at the cross, Lord, and your resurrection. So that you're justified, counted, not guilty, and in, in, in righteousness is imputed to them. And that they are in right standing with you, Lord. We're praying that that happens now. And those, for the rest of us, those who have surrendered our lives to Christ, but we're not growing. I'm praying, Lord, that these folks would put aside all the toys of this life and return to what it's important. I'm praying that for myself. Lord, when we leave here, I'm praying that this beautiful chapter, verses 1 through 10, you would knit these things to our hearts so that we could go out and love a hurting and dying world as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your own special people. May we go out in the midst of life and proclaim your praises who you've called us out of darkness into light. We thank you and we love you, but we know you. we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.